welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rock with Katie and Allie. So normally we would be spending this Thursday evening, just Allie and I talking about all things Herstory, but tonight we are bringing you a special episode um, with a woman who is currently making Herstory. Today we have a very special guest with us, Haley Shapley. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for letting me crash your party of two and join the <laughs> podcast. We're very excited. Haley is a writer, a journalist, an athlete, and the list goes on. I mean, this woman's done everything. Done so <laughs> we invited her here to talk about her new book that came out in April, Strong Like Her, a celebration of rule breakers, history makers, and unstoppable athletes. Hi, Haley. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, both your writing and your like, you know, physical fitness journey? Sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, I am a writer. I'm based in Seattle. And Strong Like Her is really a melding of a lot of the things I love. Um, I love reading for one, and I got to read a whole lot while researching this book, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, I love trivia and fun facts, so I was always looking for the interesting hooks in the stories, the little tidbits that you might share at a cocktail party, um, whenever cocktail parties are a thing, again, yeah. of course. <laughs> but you know, those little nuggets of information that stick in your mind. And as you mentioned, I also love fitness and competition and working out and stories of people pushing their limits. Um, I'm someone who likes to set new goals for myself and try new activities. So in recent years, I've um, run a marathon. I climbed a mountain. I uh, rode my bike 200 miles. Um, I did a Spartan race. Uh, I just like to try new things um, and just test my limits. Uh, so I also in my writing really like to explore new things, new ideas. And that's why I got into this profession because I just love learning. Um, and I've primarily been a writer for magazines and websites. So I just get to interview a lot of interesting people and, uh, and find out about their lives. And so working on this book really let me take that to a whole nother level because I got to dive deep for so long into, um, the stories in the book. So it was great to have a project that combined so many of my passions. Yeah, that is, that's really cool. And I kept, I know the whole time. So Catherine Switzer is a big, um, hero mm -hmm. of mine. Um, I'm a runner and the whole time I was like, when's she going to bring up Catherine Switzer? <laughs> when's she going to bring up Catherine Switzer? And you got there. And I was like, yay. See, and Catherine Switzer is also a journalist and an athlete. So when I talk to her, obviously I'm not as good at either as she <laughs> is, but, um, yes, she's, she's wonderful and does so much good work. So it was a thrill to, to chat with her. Well, and that was what was so great about your book is that like, we've been doing this podcast for a little bit now. We've covered so many women and then to like see them show up in this book. I'm like, I know her. It's like kind of like running into an old friend. It's just, it was so lovely, especially just the way you formatted the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really exciting to see all these people that we've learned to come to really care about. <laughs> yeah. But We've got a drink. Yes, speaking for your of, book. Speaking of cocktail parties, that will never happen again. <laughs> we have made a cocktail for your book and in honor of all strong women out there. Um, so I took this from Pudgy. She wrote the articles called The Barbells. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so I called this the barbell, of course, spelled B-A-R-B-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. <laughs> so it is an ounce of vodka, a half of a tablespoon or however much you want of vanilla protein powder, two ounces of vanilla almond milk, and a teaspoon of honey or honey simple syrup, 
juice from half a lime and you shake that all up very well because the protein powder tends to separate. <laughs> um, and then you garnish it with lime zest. So cheers, cheers Allie and Haley. Cheers to you in Seattle. That sounds delicious. And somewhat healthy, right? We got yeah. the protein powder in there. So I think it's pretty healthy. We got the protein powder, the almond milk, and it's, yeah. it tastes pretty good. <laughs> it's For looking like a dessert cocktail, it's very light. Yes. Like it's <laughs> very light to drink. Um, so one thing we always love to do, because I mean, right now, our, everybody who's listening, they are out for a run. So they don't have time to Google mm-hmm. <laughs> your book and they don't have time to Google the women that are in the book. So we want to describe some of the physical appearance of just the ladies in general that you wrote about. We're going to get a little <laughs> physical, physical. Very Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> Very much. Okay. Tell us about like the basic perception of women's bodies. A good por- in athletics, a good portion of your book is about that. And it is inspiring. I mean, there's a lot of quotables that you could yes. highlight. Yes, it's a huge topic in the book, of course, because I don't think that you can write a book about uh, physical strength um, without talking about bodies, you know, for better or for worse. So I do have an entire chapter just devoted to talking about the cultural norms surrounding um, strong women. And um, I think, you know, all of the women are, are very diverse in the book. They have different body types. That's one of the, the points of the book. So it's hard to generalize. But One thing I want to say about bodies just in general and strong women is that um, still the number one reason why women are hesitant to start strength training is because they worry it will make them bulky, which is an interesting term that doesn't have a consistent definition. And it's also a concept that changes quickly. Uh, There was a survey in 2009 where women looked at pictures of celebrities, and one of them was a photo of actress Jessica Biel on a beach in a bikini. And, you know, she has a flat stomach and a little bit of definition in her arms, but it's what I think most people today would describe as toned, um, which also doesn't really have a definition, but we understand it to be something lesser than bulky. Uh, But a decade ago, when this survey was done, 36% of women thought Jessica Biel was bulky, and 71% said that they would rather be too thin than to be considered muscular. Um, So I don't think you would see the same results today, which I think is a step in the right direction. Um, And one of the cool side effects of strength training is that for many women, it takes some of that emphasis off their appearance and puts it more on the function of their bodies. Um, Many of the women I interviewed described having an uneasy relationship with some part of themselves that improved when they started um, exploring their physical strength. I think bodybuilder Dana Lynn Bailey is a great example of this. Um, Growing up, she was Uh, She was insecure about the size of her legs and her chest, but when she started lifting and competing, she learned to appreciate her body more, even though she now had professional judges criticizing it. Um, But she told me that all of those things that she had been insecure about had turned into her best features, and she was able to really relate to um, other people and have them appreciate, uh, look up to her because uh, she presented as a real person and not a Barbie doll. And and she was confident about who she was. So um, yeah, I think physical description, um, the women in the book, it varies so widely. And that's what I wanted because there is no particular look for strength. You can look like 
Sandwina, who's the, a circus star in the book, who was around six feet tall and always described as curvaceous in the media. Um, one journalist said that her muscle was like a ripple under the skin, like mice playing in a mattress. Um, and then you have Pudgy Stockton, who uh, came around just a few years later, who was a prominent figure on Muscle Beach in the 30s and 40s. And she was petite, about 5'2 and 115 pounds and, and very much girl next door. So that's one of the messages I wanted to send in the book, that strong can look like Sandwina or Pudgy or anyone else. Yeah. And that was one of my favorite parts of the whole book because, you know, when you get the book, it's also like interlaced with all of these incredible professionally shot photos. And so you're seeing how differently muscles or whatever look on each body, which I think is so important because one of the great things is that every person who you interview and talk about, um, talks about this moment where like they start using their body differently and it's not even like, oh, I want to look this certain way, kind of like you're talking about. They're like, I just want to feel a certain way. And of course, everyone's body like develops differently. And I think one of the most interesting things is like you're talking about Pudgy Stockton. And then there was another kind of female bodybuilder at the time, Babe, and they were perceived very differently um, because, you know, Pudgy was like, cute <laughs> and little yeah and like her little yeah. pink bathing suit and like babe was like a little like thicker and like tougher looking and like they kind of carried themselves differently and they also um had different lifestyle choices and it wasn't until babe like had children that people kind of accepted her i mean what 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 kind of correlation is there between like you know your physical body and then like your lifestyle choices and you know what is the connection there because there was a lot of those throughout the book yes that's a good point and I love juxtaposing babe and pudgy because they are around the same age mm -hmm. and um babe actually didn't have children it was when she got married that, mm, she, that was it that uh she was really accepted which was fascinating. Um, the, just the way that reporters wrote about her before she got married, she was called a hatchet face. You know, it, they said she was so good at sports because she wasn't good at man snatching, which is what all the other <laughs> women were up to. And I mean, they just called her the worst names and, uh, were constantly speculating on why she didn't have a boyfriend and all of these things. And, um, you see that, a lot that marriage and kids and other sort of uh, concepts that are traditionally tied to femininity, that these are reinforced whenever women are talked about in a sporting context. So uh, Sandwina, the circus star I had mentioned earlier, she, they, reporters were always asking her about her kids and her parenting advice. She used to give a lot of parenting advice for whatever reason, because they always wanted to draw that that link back to the fact that she was still a woman, she was a wife, she was a mother. Um, and you might expect that in the 1910s, but it continues all the way through uh, recent years. And uh, one of the women in the book, Jan Todd, who was uh, an incredible powerlifter who got started in the 1970s, um, you know, in People Magazine, they described her uh, they described her baking hobby and the fact that she was married and that she didn't have a mustache, which was apparently shocking that she was so strong, but she didn't look like <laughs> a man. So, um, 
Yeah, I do think that lifestyle choices, uh, as you mentioned, play a role in how women, strong women are perceived. And there is this, um, this push to make sure that in the media, um, if women are seen as strong, that they're also contextualized as feminine women as well. And if they can't be contextualized that way, like they couldn't be for some time, then they're outsiders and it's not as accepted. Uh, and so I, I collected so many quotes from newspapers of, um, of these women just, they're just things that didn't relate being talked about, like their baking hobbies or their, mm-hmm. um, you know, their boyfriends or whatever it was. It's really interesting. Yeah, all all throughout the book. I think there was one point in the introduction, or no, I think it might have been in the chapter about the Victorian era, where um, you mentioned that men were supposed to be physically superior, but women were supposed to be morally superior. And I just think the way that that was worded struck struck a chord with me because it was the first time I think it was put so eloquently in the terms of like, listen, you have to have morals and get married and be pure and be a virgin and prove that you're a woman and prove that your uterus isn't going to fall out because you're working out so much. So, I mean, you're, I think your book serves as a, an outline of women's history through the lens of sports, Mm -hmm. which is a really cool thing. And it starts in ancient Greece and goes through present day. But was there one specific moment that you wrote about that you felt like this is the moment? Ooh, that's a tough question. I think there are, <laughs> I think there are a lot of moments. Um, one chapter of the book that I think sort of illustrates a lot of the concepts that I make about the connections between physical strength and other types of strength, like mental and emotional, um, is when women are fighting for suffrage. And I think a lot of women, um, or a lot of people just in general, don't know that athletes were on the front lines of making the case that women should have the right to vote. So the circus stars, um, who were women who had the ability to travel the world, which was not common at the time. Um, They made their own money, which was not common at the time. And, um, you know, they had a measure of influence and and they got to talk to people from all walks of life, uh, which, you know, in a time when it wasn't as easy to travel, wasn't something a lot of people didn't have exposure outside of their their small communities. So um, we see that with bicyclists as well. Women started riding bikes and that played into them realizing that they liked that little taste of independence that they were getting, that they could do more than just ride a bike, that they could go and vote. They could go and hang out with who they wanted to. They deserve to have a say in the way that society was run. So I talk about that in chapter four, I think. Um, But I just think it ties together a lot of the themes nicely um, about why pursuing strength isn't just, it's not just about, oh, I can lift more now or I can do more push-ups. It's about so much more than that. Yeah. And I think one of the great milestones in your book is like, there's one thing that keeps constant is the disinformation that women receive about what is going to happen to their bodies when they do 
any sort of physical activity. X, Y, Z. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite piece of that disinformation? Because there were just so many good ones to choose from. There are a lot. <laughs> I've, I've always been a fan, and by fan, I mean not a fan of right. the idea that, <laughs> that running will make your uterus fall out. Um, and what's wild about that idea, it was first, you first start to see it pop up. Well, honestly, it's ancient Greeks kind of talked about the wandering womb with women back in the day. Um, but then in the 1800s, you start to see it pop up in European medical literature. Um, and it, it persists. And even in the 1960s, when Catherine Switzer was running, this is something that she heard that uh, if you ran that far, that your uterus might just fall out. And I had um, an interesting piece of information that I wasn't able to include in the book, but it was a Russian ski jumping official who, um, this was about 10 years ago, I think, who said that women should not be allowed to ski jump in the Olympics because their, uh, their uteruses might burst. And that's not a thing that's ever happened. Um, that's been documented. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so it's just... It's just fascinating. Like, you know, men also have genitalia that can be affected <laughs> by sports, but nobody ever um, expresses concern over that. And, and back to the cycling that was happening in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, people were worried women shouldn't be riding a bike because it could it could affect their ability to have children. But what about men? Like, that's also... They are much more exposed. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's just one of many um, ways that women were kept out of uh, participating in athletics. Yeah. And I think also not just like female bodies, but also female clothing and mm -hmm. styling was very interesting in the book. And speaking to, I know one part we both loved was the tailors on the beach oh with my the gosh. swimming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I found that so funny. I had never heard that story about the boat going down in New York, I believe yeah. it was, and people, women and children not being able to swim because they weren't taught to swim. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. It really made it real like yeah like the the actual like potential downfalls uh, are literally life and death with women not being able to do things um and I love the point you made about the clothing and the beach tailors because I mean that was a big part like I feel like every time like there's a style change or something and it's like well we want you to look like this and dress like this and it's actively trying to like keep them out of the keep them out of the playing field, basically. I mean, can you just also tell us what was a beach tailor and what purpose did they serve? <laughs> yes, that's a great question. So you mentioned there was this very sad story and I won't tell the whole story so that people have something to read, but <laughs> of, um, w women didn't know how to swim in the early 1900s. And a big reason for that was because they didn't have any appropriate swimwear to, to swim in. The clothes that um, they were expected to wear on the beach were like, you know, six to 10 yards of fabric. It was usually made of wool or flannel because those were, could insulate you from the cold, but not particularly buoyant fabrics. Um, they were supposed to wear shoes, like a swimming cap, a belt. Uh, they would have puffy sleeves. So women who did want to swim 
were afraid that they would be weighed down by all of this material and they were not wrong. It was very hard to stay afloat in, in all of that. And uh, there was a great um, book written in the early 1900s and uh, about different sports for women. And the chapter on swimming was written by a man and he tried on a woman's bathing costume to see what it was like. And he was, he almost immediately sank. Um, and he was like, this is preposterous. Like women cannot swim in these garments. Um, so as women do begin to swim though, and do begin to wear uh, swimwear that um, looks more like what we have today and is less constricting, uh, thanks in large part to a few women I spotlight in the book, including Annette Kellerman, who was an Australian who kind of revolutionized um, what the swimsuit looked like for a woman. Um, as they started to wear these more risque, risque outfits, uh, some beaches would have beach tailors on them whose job it was to just go around and make sure that everyone's um, clothes were appropriate. And, and on the spot, they would make alterations like adding a longer skirt or, or uh, making an armhole a little bit smaller so that it didn't expose too much of that uh, upper arm area. So... This was something that you would see in, in some of the bigger cities like Chicago um, in the 1900s. Uh, when I get a time machine, the first thing I'm doing is bringing <laughs> one of them to present day and just letting them loose yeah. on the beach. <laughs> well, it's so they would great. not know what to do. They'd yeah, go they to wouldn't. immediate shock and it would be bad. So, I mean, I wouldn't mind having a tailor just following me around yeah. in general life, but probably not on the beach. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because you opened that whole like kind of chapter about the Victorian era with me. Like there was a female queen of England who was doing so much and people were just like, no, but we cannot see a woman's knee that, or even an ankle that is beyond questioning. Like it's just, I love that you put these like historical moments in there to like, just kind of be like, this is really crazy. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and she, the queen was so incredible and powerful. And yet even she let a lot of this, um, these ideas about what women could do get into her head. Yeah. Um, even though she had proved that she was competent and, you know, could, uh, could lead. So if someone with that amount of power um, and influence was brought down by these messages, you can imagine what an everyday woman felt like. Yeah. And I also love speaking of the clothing too. Um, I love when you talk about the um, Sicily bikini girls and this like kind mm. of ancient like stone that's found. And you say historians originally thought that it was a beauty pageant, but they were actually playing sports. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the, the famous Sicily bikini girls? Yes. This was a mosaic that was found, um, as you mentioned, in uh, in Italy, and they, um, it was found in the 1950s, and so you have to think of, about it in that context, when these historians in the 1950s found this room that had been preserved since the 12th century, by the mm -hmm. way, and that's because there had been a mudslide that kind of covered this entire villa, and so it was very well preserved when they um, were able to unearth it. Um, you know, they, there's this uh, mosaic of these women and they have what looks like um, kind of like tube tops and um, they're very cute. Bottoms on. Suit looks. <laughs> they, they look great. They look great. And 
And in that context, like it didn't occur to these male historians that these women were playing <laughs> sports. They thought, gosh, they, they're in some kind of a beauty pageant here because there's, you see some crowns and some, um, uh, uh, what's the word for it? Wreaths um, that for winners. And then they thought, well, there, this is the one who won the beauty contest. But <laughs> It, it becomes clear when you look at it, they're throwing balls, they're running. One woman even has dumbbells in her hand. Um, right. They're very, completely ignoring the equipment. <laughs> yes. And they're just, you know, there's a discus that's being thrown. Like they're, they're playing sports. And so, but the 1950s was not a time that was common for women to play sports. We see this kind of ebbing and flowing throughout the um, years. And I don't cover the 50s much in the book for that reason, because there wasn't a lot going on um, yeah. in the world of strength for women at the time. So, um, yeah, so we know that women um, and girls, they were probably, probably younger girls, had been playing sports in ancient Rome and ancient Greece for hundreds of years. Um, so then you know, you fast forward several centuries and, and it goes in and out of fashion, but it's something that women have always done when they were allowed to. And I liked that when you did start to bring up some of the things that women did start being allowed to do, how you saw it, or we saw it in the book progress so quickly. Um, well, it felt quickly to me. I'm sure it was horrible (laughs) for the people who were doing it. But one thing that we both really found cool was pedestrianism. Can you explain this? Cause I'm like, I don't, I literally couldn't comprehend it in the book because it kind of felt like women were just doing anything they possibly could, which was walking. (laughs) Yes. Pedestrianism might've been one of my favorite things to (laughs) learn about because I think it's, you know, one of the only things I didn't know a lot about before I started writing this book, I discovered it at, you know, in the midst of working on this. So it wasn't something I had planned to include, but once I found out about it, I had to, because it was really America's first spectator sport. It's been forgotten because it's not that exciting to watch, (laughs) but basically, um, once the, Industrial Revolution happened. Uh, people in cities had a lot more time to had a lot more leisure time because they weren't um, making their own food and making their own clothes and kind of just doing everything they they could to subsist. So you started to see some activities popping up for um, for people who had extra time on their hands, and one of these was pedestrianism. And this was a sport in which people would walk for. Um, either for a particular distance in a certain amount of time, or they would walk against a competitor to see who could rack up the most miles. Um, Often these were in bars and it's something that you would bet on. And that was seen (laughs) as very kind of um, low class, Uh, but it started to legitimize and become a bigger thing. and, And people started to walk from, you know, Maine to Chicago or walk in these big arenas. Um, and so uh, the woman I, I highlight in the book is Ada Anderson, who's from the UK, and she wanted to uh, show women that, that they were capable of doing more than they thought they would. Um, an important thing to remember is at the time, people did not necessarily even think walking was an acceptable activity for women. They thought walking too much was too much strain. Um, 
there was a, a, an advice book at the time that um, told women that, you know, you shouldn't walk. If you, if you want exercise, you should lie in a hammock. I'm not sure how that's exercise. It's great. <laughs> Bring a book, have a good time, right. but it's not exercise. So, um, but they felt that at the time that energy was uh, not a renewable resource. So if you used up too much of it, you wouldn't have enough to have children and raise them properly. So you couldn't risk using any of your energy on something as frivolous as walking. Um, but Ada Anderson came over to the U.S. and had a different message that, that women could try it and that even if they weren't going to walk as far as she did, that they could, um, they could achieve something that they previously thought not possible and, and that would bring benefits to their lives. Well, it's just, it's an incredible story because you say that she walked like, what was it, like 500 miles in like three weeks while resting like 20, is that correct? Am I getting that right? <laughs> she did a ton of different, um, a ton of different distances. Yeah. I think 500 miles in three weeks was one. Um, but the way she broke it up was it was a thousand half miles and a thousand half hours. So <laughs> She would walk half a mile and then in whatever the remaining time was in that half an hour, she would have to rest. And then when the next half an hour um, began, then she, uh, she had to start walking again. So she wasn't resting any longer than 20 minutes at a time for three weeks. That's uh, which insane. Is, <laughs> it's wild. Like, I don't, I don't understand pedestrianism. I, have I to feel be, like uh, this is, honest. this is the sport that's calling me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I want for my life. Um, You're so well, sleep deprived. I know. Well, and I love it too, because you talk about, she's like riling up the crowds and she's singing and whistling and like doing all these fun, like she's being a showman while she's oh, doing yeah. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was great. She would, she would uh, do pranks on people who fell asleep in the audience. She'd like rub coal on their faces and she would during her break she would just sip some port wine because you know that keeps you <laughs> keeps you going in between yeah um, perfect yeah she was a lot of fun and <laughs> she showed her knees which was very scandalous um but back to kind of fashion the newspapers just described her walking outfits in painstaking detail. <laughs> Which they did of the men at the time too, to an extent, but not, not nearly as much as they highlighted what she was wearing and every outfit change she would have, they would just report on breathlessly. Right. (laughs) Really interesting. Um, yeah, but to be, to be a pedestrian, you have to be a polyphasic sleeper. So you can't have, you, you know, you can't have eight hours a night. You're getting a few minutes at a time. And and the race I really highlight in the book is one where she was walking, um, oh, 2,200, I want to say, quarter miles, in t- or 2,700, 2,700 quarter miles in 2,700 quarter um, hours. So that was like 675 miles in the span of about a month. And so she wasn't, you know, it, ta- it would take her, um, I think her fastest lap was like two minutes. So she really didn't get very much rest, um, in those, in in that whole time. Um, and I, I feel best on nine hours a night, I have to admit. So I don't know how how I would do for a whole month of sleeping, like no more than 10 minutes at a time. I know that's, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, but I feel like let's, let's tell people about like this book. 
Yeah, because the the format is so good and all the women you pick are so interesting. So, I mean, how, so how did, just take us through, because we've been just gabbing on and on because I could talk forever about your book. Can you tell our listeners how you formatted the book and, you know, just the whole process? Sure. The book, as you mentioned earlier, it starts in ancient Greece and it goes all the way through present day. And each chapter, um, you know, the chapters are kind of in, in chronological order and they each highlight um, an athlete or a time period or some theme that contributes to the greater uh, story of how women's muscularity and physical strength has evolved through the years. And then within the book, um, there are 23 portraits of modern day athletes from all different sports. There's a softball player, a long distance swimmer, um, a Paralympic athlete, weightlifter, crossfitter, lots of different women from all walks of life um, who, um, who have these beautiful portraits with these quotes, and then you get to hear their stories um, at the end of the book. So there are lots of little, um, lots of entry points into the book, and it really covers the highlights of this evolution of women's physical strength, which is not something that had been covered before um, in this way for a mainstream audience. It, and you, I mean, I could tell while I was reading it, the amount of intense research you had to do. And then obviously you have all your sources in the back of the book. And I was like, this is like a full blooded history novel, but it comes off like such an easy read, which mm-hmm. was just so great. But where did, was there anywhere really cool or any person you got to meet that was like your favorite place that the book took you to do the research? Uh, my favorite place was probably Iceland. Um, mm. You can't go wrong there. I went and ran in a Spartan race, and I tell that story a bit in the afterword of the book, actually. Um, and that was just cool. I met some amazing athletes there, and I got the chance to kind of test myself um, in a physical contest. Uh, but a really serendipitous thing happened on my way back from Iceland. I was on a layover in Chicago and I started talking to this um, gentleman sitting near me and uh, somehow we got on the conversation of strong women and he told me I should meet his wife, that she was very strong. And a few minutes later she came by and this was a woman in her early 80s who was, her face just absolutely lit up telling me about how she deadlifted 121 pounds on her 81st birthday. And I loved it. I loved it because I have, I focused obviously a lot in the book on women who are elite athletes and who have accomplished things that are in record books. But what I love about strength now is how many regular women are being exposed to it and getting the opportunity to benefit from, um, you know, discovering what their bodies are capable of. So uh, she's been fun. I've stayed in touch with her and I just um, loved her story and and it was just great to see Iceland and all of its um, otherworldly glory and then to have this just kind of serendipitous encounter on the way back. Mm. That's so great. And it's honestly what the whole book 
feels like. It just feels so good and empowering. And for me, I was really excited to see a rock climber in there because I'm a rock climber. So that was really exciting. And that's the whole point is you can kind of see yourself in literally any of the, I mean, dozens of women that you talk about. And it's so inspiring. And I just love it. And I could talk about this book forever, but we should probably... Yeah, we should, we should tell people and- <laughs> where, where they can get it because yes. that's the most important thing. We want other people to be inspired by your words as well. So where can they find you? Where can they find your book? Yes, uh, the book is available anywhere books are sold. So, um, you know, wherever you like to buy your books. I, I, right now, I like to encourage people to buy from an independent bookstore if there's one near you that you um, enjoy. So many shops right now are offering free shipping and stores can always order a book for you if they don't happen to have it in stock. So I recommend that, but also any online outlet that you, that you like is, uh, works too. And then you can find me, um, on my website, which is HaleyShapley.com. I'm on Instagram at Haley Shapley and Twitter at Haley Shapley. So, um, anywhere my name is, I'm around. Perfect. Well, Thank you. I mean, just from two strong women to another one, we just want to thank you so much for this book and your hard, hard work on it because I really encourage everyone to go out and buy this book because it is so fantastic. I so. mean, if it's, if it's any endorsement at all, I already bought one as a Christmas present for someone else. Um, I bought a, we, we got the PDF version yeah. and I've already bought it just for myself to put on my bookshelf. Well, let's, <laughs> let's buy 10 more and yes. just give them out as presents yes. to listeners. <laughs> So thank you so much again. And uh, we hope everyone goes out and buys it. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you so <laughs> yeah, much for you. coming. You're a blast of a person. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is been great. <laughs> You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.